0: Welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's most notorious murders where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, according to LegalDictionary.com, the word "parricide" is defined as as the murder of a close relative it could be like your siblings like a brother or sister or the victim could be like your aunt your uncle a cousin or any other close relative uh, you would think that the murder of a parent would warrant an automatic life sentence but apparently in the state of Maryland it don't and mostly all of the murderers in this season um, they have either already been released or, uh, they're on their way to being released. Um, they have served their time. Uh, most of these, uh, murderers that I'm profiling, their sentence, uh, was not really like a life sentence. It was killing your parents or, you know, your guardian or something like that did not necessarily warrant a, a, life without parole sentence. So... Um apparently in the state of Maryland, you know, killing your parents does not necessarily warrant a life sentence, it's just like, you know, killing your child or whatever does not necessarily um commit you to a life sentence. And, you know, for the listeners who are truly familiar with me and my story, no, I will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father because that case has already been profiled for TV one several times. And that's pretty much old news now. You can already check out all of that episodes on, on, you know, my Payback episodes, my Justice By Any Means episode, or you can click on the episode um, that's featured on Spotify that's entitled Why I Do What I Do. But for this season, this particular season, season eight, the focus or topic of discussion will be killers who, for whatever reason have murdered their mother or their father or their grandparents or basically killers who have been accused and convicted of murdering a parent or grandparent. So for this season, season eight, the killer that I'm going to profile is 16-year-old Lisa Friedel. And like I have done in every single episode that has been featured on this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs attention, it needs to be reopened, it needs to be talked about or something, because basically not a lot is being done, if anything is being done at all. And simply the public just simply forgot about it because we're overshadowed with all the other murders, all the other murders that have occurred in the state. So for the unsolved murder that I'm going to profile for this episode is the shooting murder of 42-year-old John Howard Bowling. Now, look, I'm just going to get straight to the point. We all like to think that our kids are sweet little angels. You know, maybe when they reach their we, we think they're angels and they can do no wrong. And they're so sweet and cuddly and they just make mistakes. But maybe when they reach their teenage years and sometimes nowadays, even earlier than that, sometimes us as parents we feel like the kid or the teens y'all turn into somebody else okay i'm just gonna put it out there sometimes you you turn into somebody that we no longer know a person that we no longer recognize girls females especially maybe it's just a phase maybe it's something a period of growth that all teenagers go through you know i'm sure it is maybe that stage of rebellion like the I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to do my own thing. Maybe that stage or that mentality, maybe that's just not a phase to some people. Maybe they don't, it's not something that they just grow out of. Sometimes that behavior, believe it or not, that's just part of the teen's true character. That's just how they really are. You can't blame that on the parents. Fuck that. You cannot always think just because you got an out of control teen. Or an unruly kid that is automatically the parents' fault, the way that they were raised. Sometimes your kid is just an evil, flat-out fuck-up, for real. Now, let's be honest. I mean, it ain't no excuse. I mean, I said what I said. Sometimes kids always want to cry about some abuse, or the reason why they're so disrespectful to their parents is because, for some kind of way, the parents taught them to be that way. Come on now. Or I'm I'm mistreated because your your parents or it's abuse if your parents tell you to clean your room nowadays or it's abuse or I'm being mistreated if your parents order you to do some chores on Sunday or Saturday like you're supposed to do or they think that they have been if your your parents actually or require you to all of a sudden to do some things that you were not doing before then all of a sudden you know it's abuse or you're being mistreated, or you have anxiety, or this, that, when you've been spoiled all your lives and you don't know how to take orders. Or maybe it's because you're, if your parents or your mother, your father punished you for not listening, for not obeying their rules. And that's whatever those rules may be. And you face not only you know, you face the consequences for those rules being broken. And you, as that a child, a teen or whatever, you retaliate not only against that punishment, but you want to cry abuse. Look, when you're like that and you stay like that, I can understand it if it's a phase. But if you stay like that throughout your whole life, only God can help you like that. I mean, I'm not even, only God can help you. So, 16-year-old Lisa Freidel... Was one of those teens. Raised in Harmony, Maryland, close to the Choptank River, the junior at Colonial Richardson High School in Caroline County was spoiled, she was rebellious, and she was unruly. Because Lisa lived with her mother, 47 year old Laura May Kujua, and her stepfather, 46 year old Larry Kujua. In their home in the 6300 block of Ganey's Wharf Road in Harmony. Lisa didn't like their rules. And she wanted to go live with her biological father. Who lived in Seaford, Delaware. Maybe her biological father didn't want to live with her. She ever thought about that? But anyway. And because that wasn't happening no time soon. Lisa told everybody she could. That she wanted to kill her parents. And totally end their life. Lisa talked about it constantly to her friends. She talked about it to everybody in school, uh, her friends on a school bus, anybody who would listen. Imagine as a 16-year-old, you're constantly running your mouth, talking about how you want to take your parents out, but at the same time, you're still sleeping in their house. Nobody took her seriously, but she talked about it so much like she was discussing the weather or what she was going to wear for school the next day. I mean, while her parents are out here shopping for her prom dress— Lisa was making her own plans to take both of them out. She shared her plans to kill her parents with another 14-year-old male friend of hers, and together they both talked about whether or not if they should get a hitman to do it or whether if they should do it themselves and who they was going to do, who who they was going to recruit to basically do the job for them. Now, you would think like I said a lot of a lot of teens when they get mad at their parents, they're like, oh, I wish they would just die. Oh, I wish I could kill them, whatever. But like I said, this wasn't just a phase. This wasn't just kids talking or kids being mad and talking. Some kids are just fucked up. When when they figured out that they couldn't do it or get a hitman to do it, basically, you know, because they had no money, Lisa decided in her little 16-year-old mind that she wanted her parents dead so bad That she was going to take them out herself so lisa's stepfather had taught her how to shoot a gun and he kept a 300 357 magnum in the house for protection now twice lisa tried to take him out twice twice she tried to psych herself up to do what she had bragged about wanting to do for so long and for so much and two times at night lisa crept into her parents bedroom in the middle of the night while they were sleeping and tried to muster up the carriage to end her parents' life. But she couldn't do it. According to articles in the Baltimore Sun, twice in a row, like a thief in the night, Lisa crept into her parents' bedroom, staring at them and wished that she could pull the trigger, just wished that she could kill them. The next day on the bus ride to school, Lisa told at least two of her friends that she was planning to kill her parents because she wanted them dead and she wanted them out of her life as soon as possible and that she had tried to do it before but she just couldn't, she just didn't have the courage to do it. But on the night of Tuesday, March the 29th, 1994, when Lisa crept into her parents' bedroom to see if they were still awake, when Lisa's mother confronted her Lisa played things off and went back to bed not knowing that Lisa's mother probably she had no idea that this was going to be the last time that she would see her daughter the last time she would have a conversation with her because by the third time when when Lisa crept into her parents bedroom about 11 p.m. and found that her parents had fallen asleep while watching TV this time. Lisa not only found her carriage, she was carrying the 357 that she had taken from her parents' bedroom the night before. Lisa raised the gun and fired the gun multiple times. Lisa shot her mother once in the back and once in the head. Lisa's stepfather was shot twice in the head. Two other bullets ended up into the bedroom wall. After killing her parents instantly, Lisa crept back in her bed like it was any other night. Now, does that sound like normal teenage rebellion? Lisa was cold, calculating, sinister, evil. The next morning, Lisa woke up, got out of bed, stole her parents' 1992 Ford Bronco and their credit cards. Lisa then gave the gun to her 14-year-old male friend, and he filed off the serial numbers off the gun to make it harder for anybody to trace it, and he hid the gun in Lisa's home instead of really getting away with it. I mean, really getting rid of it. I mean, he was fourteen. What you expect? Some type of bagabba type shit. But anyway, after going shopping with her parents' credit cards, I don't know why kids always do that. You always want to take our money after we leave. You always. I mean, after you do what you got to do, we're not good for anything. But yet and still, you want to take all credit cards. Anyway, Lisa took her parents' Ford Bronco and their credit cards. She grabbed up four of her teenage friends and drove to an Ocean City motel for an ever-ending, no-chaperoned party. Lisa told none of her friends what she had done. They had no clue that she was out partying while her parents lay dead in their bed. Meanwhile, back at home, it was highly unusual for Laura and Larry to not show up to their jobs and family and friends started getting worried when they didn't hear from them in over 24 hours. A relative called the local police department to do a wellness check on them after um, people from their jobs contacted their family and were like, you know, they're not coming to work, so something must be wrong. And when the police showed up at their home to investigate further, that's when they found both of their bodies and they were pronounced dead. It didn't take long for the detectives to discover that Lisa was missing with their parents' truck. And Lisa was quickly found in an Ocean City motel three days after she killed her parents. Arrested on Thursday, April the 1st, 1994, and charged as an adult With two counts of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter, and the use of a handgun in the commission of the crime, Lisa was held without bail after she confessed to the detectives that she was tired of being afraid of her mother, tired of her parents' alleged, alleged verbal abuse, and that something came over her before she shot them both. Lisa's 14-year-old male friend was also tracked down. He was also arrested and charged as an accessory to commit murder after the fact because he had helped Lisa hide and alter the gun that was used to kill her parents. Eventually, in court, Lisa pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and a handgun violation, even after she insisted that her parents had been verbally abusive to her and the judge didn't show Lisa no mercy at her sentencing hearing when he called her a cold-blooded murderer. Telling Lisa that she would basically have the rest of her life to think about why she killed her parents, he sentenced Lisa to 60 years in prison. Despite having two concurrent life sentences, Lisa was eventually released from prison. Like what I said from the beginning, just because you're sentenced to a life sentence for killing your parents does not necessarily mean that you're going to serve your whole life sentence. You know, play your cards right, good behavior, stuff like that. Guess what? Trust me, I know you can be released. But just because you got released from prison does not necessarily mean that you're free. Think about it. I mean, killing a person is one thing, but killing both of your parents... Whether that be a step parent, a biological parent, or whatever, whatever guardian that was responsible for taking care of you, when you've taken them out, that's something that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. And if that's an easy thing for you to do, God help you. God help you. I mean, I hope that, um, I'm quite sure Lisa has redeemed herself. I'm quite sure this is something that she probably struggles with on a daily basis, And she served the time. It is what it is. I mean, but, you know, this goes to show that I understand uh, teenagers go through their stages where they have phases of they hate their parents. I mean, I went through that phase, too, or whatever. But some teens actually mean that. You know, some of them actually uh, want to kill their parents. And some of them do. And the reason why this case was... One of Maryland's I chose, I selected this one as one of Maryland's most notorious homicides in Maryland, particularly when we're dealing with a, uh, a parasite theme, is because she, like she said, something came over her. <laughs> I, I, I would like to know what that thing was, but something came over her, which propelled her to shoot both her parents with a 350, three, I don't know why I keep saying 357, But with a 357 Magnum. And I remember when this happened in 94. And I was just like, wow. In rural... uh, uh, Harmony, Maryland. This was a... Harmony, Maryland. Curlone County is a rural area where... You know, not a lot of crime. And not a lot of uh, action going out there. Going on out there. But on this particular day... Yeah. I I remember when this happened. And I was kind of moved by it. I was kind of touched by it. I remember thinking... I, I couldn't believe that was her excuse. Something came over her and, you know, some abuse. Um, according to, uh, friends and family, they, her, the step, um, Laura and Larry were stellar members in the community. Nobody ever complained about any abuse. You know, it was just weird, but I hope she, like I said, again, I've hoped that, uh, she has redeemed herself. I hope that, um, she makes better choices now and, um, I hope that uh, she just has basically shown remorse. And I know this can't be something easy for her to live with every day, but she has served the time. And apparently she has moved on and been released. And so right now, we're going to mosey on right on into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And just like in every single episode that has been on this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on homicide cases where, you know, it may have received a lot of press, a lot of attention. You know, you may have seen portions of it on Murder, Inc. or Fox 45 on the news or something like that. Uh, This podcast, it also does shine a light on the many homicide cases that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention. They don't receive a lot of press because they're overshadowed by another homicide or any. sometimes they don't receive no attention at all. These types of murders are so common in this state that there's not a lot of time to focus on just one because, like I said, once you have focused on one homicide, here comes another one popping up. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial or the first report about it. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely staggering. It's unbelievably, really, I believe it's something like 50%. It's obvious that homicide detectives, they can't do it all. Like, it's not like what you see on the first 48 or the other crime shows where something is solved within... You know a couple days in maryland it's not like that i mean homicide detectives are often overworked they underpaid they're under stress and they flat out outnumbered and kept busy all the time by the number of homicides that we see especially in baltimore city but what happens to those cases where nobody is talking at all what happens to those cases when there are absolutely no clues no evidence no witnesses, nothing that can provide any answers to why a particular person was killed. Or what happens to those cases where because of the victim's past or the victim's lifestyle, where it seems like the detectives ain't really trying to investigate the case because the victims, they quote-unquote, they had it coming, or they sold drugs, or they, I ain't really gonna put my my time and effort into really trying to find this person's killer because, Hey, they had it coming. You'd be surprised how, you know, <laughs> people can think it, it, it seems like for the family that the killer or killers just simply get away with murder because nobody don't want to investigate it. It just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten, forgotten homicides, not because nobody cares anymore, but because the public simply forgot all about it because we've been bombarded by new homicides. It's like we have almost become immune to homicides in this state. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. You know, it's important to keep these victims alive, too. You know, they deserve justice. Their family deserve answers. They deserve investigation, just like any other homicide. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 42-year-old John Howard Bowling on May 18th, 1992, Baltimore County police responded to a call that they received about a shooting at the Ramada Inn in the 8700 block of Lock Raven Boulevard. Now, once they arrived on the scene, they found 42-year-old John Howard Bowling shot several times and he died shortly after. John was a security guard who worked for the Ramada Inn and a person who saw the shooting told the police that an unknown person shot John when he went to the front door to let somebody else in and opened the door. The detectives believe that John was shot in a robbery attempt and either way, they have no clues, no evidence, no leads, no suspects, and they need your help. So if you have any information that you want to provide, in this, 21, this t- what, 29-year-old unsolved homicide, please call Baltimore County Detectives at 410-887-3943 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also text your information or tip to CRIMES, which is C-R-I-M-E-S, and on the numeric keypad, it's 274637. Uh, Once again, those numbers are Baltimore County Homicide Detectives at 410-887-3943 or Metro Crime Stoppers at one 7 lockup You can also text your information or tip to crimes, which is C-R-I-M-E-S- but on the numeric keypad, it's 274-637. There is a $2,000 cash reward for any information leading to an arrest or conviction for this unsolved homicide in Baltimore County. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine tingling, hair raising, eye popping episodes and for paid subscribers be sure to check out the real the raw the uncensored version of why I do what I do why I decided to start a a true crime podcast a lot of people think that I just woke up one day and just had an idea and then boom there's a podcast but nope that ain't even half of the truth I mean there's a real therapeutic message to this true crime world of gore and mayhem if that I live in. And if you click on the episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, why I'm so crazy, why I'm so fascinated with true crime. I also want my listeners to know that very, very soon, and when I mean by very soon, I mean in the next couple weeks, possibly before the end of this particular season, which is season eight that the documentary version of, or the film version of this podcast of uh, basically a podcast, the very first episode that I featured on this podcast, which featured, uh, the accused child murderers, a Ad- Don Canella and Paula Carpio Espinoza. The documentary form of that case will be released very, very, very soon within the next couple of weeks. And when the documentary, which was produced by Savage Life Productions, and filmed on location in Baltimore City, will be available for download, I will definitely keep you guys posted as to where you can download it. Now I must say this, I must say this right now, that doc, the documentary, since, since we focused, since this podcast. It's it's published by Savage Life Productions. Look at look at the word. that me Savage Life. I'm just gonna put that out there. I deal with uh, material that is of an adult, violent nature. It used to be Real Life Productions, but that wasn't the Real Life wasn't really the way I wanted to come across to uh, my listeners. I I wanted people to know really that. This is a savage podcast. And what I mean by that is you're going to hear some things. You're going to see some things on this documentary that you're not used to seeing. Now, I know, um, uh, you know, this is 2023 and a lot of people are immune to gore and violence and blood and and stuff like that. But this podcast deals with those type of subjects. The documentary deals with those type of subjects. We were talking about we're dealing with kids that were beheaded and since like i said the theme of this material is of a adult gory content you have to be i have to put a disclaimer out there and a warning out there before you view or listen to any of my material um my material is not censored it's not edited meaning that i don't go back and delete some of the stuff that i said and you know, if somebody come at me years ago or years from now and say, well, you know, you said this about so-and-so, whatever, you're most likely right if you can prove it. Because I don't go back and edit and try to delete what I said or any of that. And I say all of that to say that the documentary that will be featured, it, it's very, very, very gory. It's not like what you have used to being or which maybe what you've seen on uh, on TV. I haven't even seen nothing like this on Netflix. You know, as a matter of fact, most of the networks that I tried to deal with turned it down because of the gory nature. It 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 deals with kids that were killed. And like I said, none of my stuff is uncut. So you will most likely be seeing that in the documentary. So I have to put that disclaimer out there and I have to put that warning out there that um it's... If, if you don't want to be exposed to that, if you don't want to, if you are, you know, truly into true crime and you don't want to see what really happened to these kids, um, then you don't have to watch it. But I had to emphasize the brutal nature and the brutality of it just so I can show the public what the type, just to show that there's no way that Paula Carpio and uh, Mr. Canella committed these heinous crimes there's no way a family member would have done that and the only way to really show that is to compare that with other homicides that were done similar to those so like i said you you have to watch the documentary to really understand that but it should be released soon very soon and like i said i'll keep you guys posted and the link will be on um i'll show you or let you know as to where you can download it and while you're at it speaking of downloading you can visit over to the new website, which is Maryland's Most Notorious Murders and Maryland is spelled MDS Most Notorious Murders.com, where you can access all of the episodes of this podcast and check out the different seasons that we have focused on. Like we focused on relationship or husband wife type of homicides or even Maryland's infamous teenage killers. You can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 to 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and as well as Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. You can also check me out on Season 1 of Payback which airs for the TV One Network. You can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV One's Justice By Any Means, TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profile teen killers uh, Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong, who will also be profiled a little bit later on, on uh, this season. Uh, once the season one documentary is available for download, you'll also be able to find the links here at Maryland's Most Notorious uh, Please be sure to tune in next week, where another gruesome, another high profile homicide occurring in Maryland. It will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Marilyn's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production.